the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. Our joy is not in our circumstances. Our joy is in the Lord who is Lord of our circumstances. And Christians have the ability to go beyond what the world would call happiness because happiness is very circumstantial. And so as things are good, people are happy. When things are bad, people are sad. But the joy of the Lord is something that transcends all of life's circumstances. And it is really this abiding, calm delight in your heart because you have the Lord who is the one who brings that calm delight in spite of the way that our lives might be unraveling at the time. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Philippians. Today, Pastor Gary shows us where our joy should be coming from and how to find happiness even in the worst of circumstances. Many people struggle to keep their moods on the brighter side of things, especially when life is making them feel all alone or left in the darkness. With today's day and age, happiness is sought in things. Material items that you can buy, use, listen to, watch, or play. However, Pastor Gary wants you to see that there is a happiness so profound that no material item could ever reach the same magnitude. And that happiness, friend, can only be found through Christ. What are you waiting for? At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. So we're here in the book of Philippians, and there have been Uh, three main purposes for Paul's writing this letter. Uh, Number one is a thank you letter for the support of the church at Philippi because he is in prison in Rome, and so he's sending this letter as an update on his condition and a thank you letter for their support. Number two was also about a warning about false teachers that have crept into the church there at Philippi. And number three, it is a pleading for unity. There seems to be some division here. There's some, there's some differences and disagreements that have uh, become embedded in the church at Philippi. And so Paul is addressing them about this and, and warning them about dissensions and factions and, and divisions. The thing that we're going to really see most tonight in chapter three is this issue with number two, a warning about false teachers. There's going to be an address that he gives to false teachers here in chapter 3, warning the church at Philippi about the potential for for these false teachers to lead them astray. This is about 10 years after Paul originally planted this church in Philippi, and in the course of 10 years, a lot of things can creep into any church, 
and stir up division and controversy and lead people astray. And so Paul has this heart to protect the bride of Christ, and he just wants to make sure that the church at Philippi, that he, that he was instrumental, he was used by God to plant this church some 10 years earlier. Acts chapter 16 details all that. That they remain true to the Lord, that they don't allow things to creep in and corrupt their faith and to interrupt unity in the church. And so uh, chapter 3 has to do in large part with this warning about false teachers. And he begins here in in chapter 3, verse 1, saying, finally, my brothers, which as a pastor, I I like that because he says finally, but then he has another two chapters to go. (laughs) But he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Circle that word rejoice. It is a word that is used or some form of it 14 times in the book of Philippians. Only four chapters, and the word is used 14 times. Rejoice in the Greek is the word kairo, and the noun form that forms from that word is joy. The Greek word is kara. So kairo and kara. Now, the, the definition of that Greek word means calm delight. Whenever we think of rejoicing, don't think of it as this giddiness or this silliness or just or this denial of the hardships of life. And so I'm just going to pretend like even though my world is exploding, I'm still going to have this smile on my face and this, you know, skip in my step. That's not, that's not the idea behind rejoice or joy. It is translated literally calm delight. It's not this superficial giddiness, but it is this sense of just peace and contentment in the Lord. Notice, rejoice in the Lord. So our joy is not in our circumstances. Our joy is in the Lord who is Lord of our circumstances. And Christians have the ability to go beyond what the world would call happiness because happiness is very circumstantial. And so as things are good, people are happy. When things are bad, people are sad. But the joy of the Lord is something that transcends all of life's circumstances. And it is really this abiding, calm delight in your heart because you have the Lord who is the one who brings that calm delight in spite of the way that our lives Lives might be unraveling at the time. He is the one who brings that calm delight to our hearts. So it's not this superficial stuff. We'll talk more about it next week uh, because in chapter 4, that's when he talks about rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Many of you grew up singing that little song in Sunday school. And who knows, maybe we'll try to do that in rounds next week. I doubt it, but I'm just, just sounded like a fun thought. Anyway. He says, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble, verse 1, for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. So again, here is protective nature here about the church. This is a safeguard for you. You know, I know I'm saying this over and over again, but I've got some things I need to repeat to you, but it's okay. I write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. I want to protect you. And here's, here's the ones he wanted to protect them from. Verse 2, watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. So he refers here to to those dogs. Now, he's not meaning it literally, he's meaning it figuratively, and he's referring to these false teachers. And he's calling them dogs, which is a very disparaging term in in those days. I mean, it it is today, I mean, I suppose in today's vernacular, it's almost like a good thing, like, yo, dog, what's up? But back in those days, yo, dog was not a good term, it was a bad term. And, And he's referring to these false teachers, and he calls them 
men who do evil, and then even says they're mutilators of the flesh. And then he goes on about how he says, we are of the circumcision. So here's who he's referring to. These false teachers were a group called the Judaizers. We've referred to them many other times throughout the course of our study of the New Testament. The Judaizers were uh, Jews who were strict legalists. The Judaizers were believers in Jesus as a way to be saved, but the Judaizers combined Jesus with other Jewish things like feasts and certain rites and certain practices that would then make a person Jewish in order to really be saved. So here's the way Judaizers would think. You, you believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior? Great, so do we. But you guys still have to be circumcised. That's part of the, Jew, the Jewish rite. That's a Jewish tradition. That's a Jewish covenant practice. So you, you Gentiles, you have to be circumcised in order to really be a Christian. Uh, you people have to practice the feasts, the festivals. You have to do all of these different rites of purification, all these other kinds of things. Now, Paul is saying they're, they're basically mutilating the flesh because if they're making circumcision a requirement for salvation, they've done nothing more than mutilate your flesh because the truth of the matter is that Christ died for our sins and it's faith in Him and, and faith in Him alone. That you, you, you can't add anything to it and you can't improve upon the message of the cross. People are still doing this today. Good, honest people who are still doing this today. It's not, it's not much different today in some circles of Christianity than it was in Paul's day. I mean, in Paul's day, it was circumcision and the feasts and the festivals and the rites of purification. And today, you hear people say things like, you've got to be baptized if you're really going to be a Christian. There's some actual Christian sects, which may in fact be more of, of a cult than it is a Christian sect, whenever anyone or any sect or any organization tells you you have to do something in addition to believing in Jesus Christ for your sins to be forgiven... They've corrupted the cross. They've nullified the message of the gospel. So you have some circles saying you've got to be baptized in order to be a Christian. You've got you to speak in tongues in order to be a Christian. You have to tithe in order to be a Christian. You've got to do all kinds of things in order to be a Christian. You have other, other practices, which some, this speaks to some of your tradition. You've got to practice penance to really be saved. You've you got to confess to a priest to really be saved. You've got to pray to Mary to be saved. There's all kinds of things people have added on to the simplicity of the cross. Let me just say it as clearly and plainly as I possibly can, because this is what Paul is trying to drive home here with the church of Philippi, and this is important for every single person to know. You don't need to do a single thing. It's already been done for you in its entirety by what Jesus did on the cross, okay? It's only a response to what he did, which is an exercise of your faith, an exercise of your faith by saying, I believe that Jesus Christ died on a cross for my sins. You may not understand. This is a profound thing, friends. You might say, well, I don't, how is it possible that God sent his son, he died on a cross, he shed his blood, and I can have my sins forgiven and go to heaven if I just believe that, if I put my faith in that, in what Christ did? I mean, how, how does all that make sense? Hey, that's what faith is all about. You exercise faith because you trust and believe in what you cannot see. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So we trust in God's finished plan and His finished work for us, accomplished on the cross, where the wrath of God was satisfied because God is just, and we're sinful, and sin must be punished. And the only way that we could escape punishment for our sin is if God determined that He would punish someone else instead of us. 
That's what he did. He said, I determined to offer my son as a sacrifice. The punishment intended for all of us, Isaiah tells us, is placed on Jesus by his crucifixion. We can receive forgiveness and we can be healed and we can go to heaven when we die. So this is an exercise of your faith. But there's nothing you can do to get in the good graces of God. There's no works you can accomplish. There's not trying to be a good person. I mean, that's noble, but that doesn't get you closer to heaven. So whether it's Old Testament stuff or whether it's modern day stuff, we have to guard against polluting and corrupting the simplicity of the message of the cross, where Jesus dies on a cross for our sins, sheds his blood, and then we exercise faith and we receive this free gift of forgiveness by the simple exercise of our faith. You say, what else is there involved? There's just nothing else involved. Well, what else do I have to do? There's just nothing else you have to do. I mean, this is all accomplished. So, so Paul's very protective for the church at Philippi because they're buying into some of this. False teachers come along going, no, you, you guys have to be circumcised. It's part of the Jewish right in order for you to really be saved. And Paul's like, no, they're just, they're just men who do evil. They're mutilating the flesh. That's all they're doing. And then Paul says there in verse 3, for it is we. He says, you talk about really those who are the circumcision. We're, we really understand circumcision in its proper perspective. And he says, we who worship by the Spirit of God, and it is we who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. And Paul's going to launch here into his own pedigree. He's basically going to say, if anybody thinks, if anybody has the right to assert their own pedigree as reason for why they should be acceptable to God, it would be moi. That's what he's going to say here. He's, and then he goes off on a list of his resume here. Take a look here. He says in the rest of verse 4, If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Here's, here's the list. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day. Okay, in other words, he's saying, even from the time I was born, I was obedient to the letter of the law. Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3, talks about how a boy was to be circumcised on the eighth day. Interestingly, we now know physiologically that there's a surge of vitamin K through our body on the eighth day, the clotting agent. And so God says, circumcised on the eighth day. Paul says, I was true to that. He says, of the people of Israel, meaning I'm not a proselyte to Judaism, I was born a Jew. He says, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Benjamin was a very special tribe because Benjamin was the special son of Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Benjamin was his most loved. Benjamin was the guy who was really esteemed. Benjamin was the tribe that stayed true to the tribe of Judah and became the southern kingdom. Benjamin was the tribe from which the first king of Israel emerged, King Saul. So Benjamin, he's like, you know, I was not only just born a Jew, not any Jew, I was born of the tribe of Benjamin. And he adds a Hebrew of Hebrews. You know, that's like saying, that's a patriotic statement. That's like saying, I'm an American of the Americans. You know, it's just like, you can't get any more patriotic than I am. It might even refer to the fact that both his parents were Hebrew. It's a superlative description. He says, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, Paul was of the sect of the Pharisees. They were very legalistic. They were very strict in their interpretation of the law. Paul says, 
That was, that was me. He says in verse 6, as for zeal, persecuting the church, because remember in the book of Acts, Paul, before he came in contact with Jesus, was out killing Christians and arresting them and having them killed. At, at the very least, he's, he's a party to uh, having Christians killed if he didn't kill them himself. So he's like, I was so zealous for God that I was out killing Christians when I first thought that Christians were just this heretical sect of Judaism. And then he adds, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. He's like, I, I practiced all the laws of the rabbis. I was perfect in the way that I carried out every ordinance, every law, every statute. So Paul's saying here, if anybody has reason to brag that, that they have this sense of confidence in, in themselves, he said, it, it would be me. Because here's my long list of qualifications here. He says in verse 7, but whatever was to my profit, now that I know Jesus, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Let me just read through the section. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness, some of your Bibles say value, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. King James uses the word dung. We'll talk about that in a minute. I consider them rubbish or dung that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. All right, let's come back up to verse 7 here. He starts to write almost like an accountant here because he's talking about profit and loss. It's like, it's like Paul pulls out this ledger here, and he talks about how when he, when he looks at his ledger and he looks at profit and loss, he says, in the profit category, I considered myself. You know, I, I thought, you know, man, I, I've been true to Judaism. I've been true to the letter of the law. I've obeyed the ancient rabbis. I've obeyed all the laws. I was even circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, not a proselyte. I was born a Jew. Man, if anybody thought highly of themselves as being someone who was righteous before God because of my own righteousness, keeping the letter of the law, it would be me. So it's like on the ledger book, man, I'm high on the prophet category. He says, and until, until I came into contact with Christ, and, and now I'm struck by the surpassing excellency of the greatness of who Christ is. And so I know now comparatively when I look at the righteousness, so there's two types of righteousness he talks about here. Notice again, he says, the righteousness of my own, I'm reading out of verse 9, the righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that's one type of righteousness, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So he talks about two sets of righteous standards here. He says, there's the righteousness of my own, that comes through the law. So I've, I've been a good boy. I've kept all the right rules and requirements. Okay. And then there's a righteousness that comes from God that is through faith. We receive a righteousness that is Im imputed to us because we exercise faith and receive it as a gift from God. And he says, when I, when I got out my ledger book and I thought so highly of how great and righteous I was, 
when I compared it to the surpassing excellency of the greatness of Christ, I considered everything a loss. Everything about me was a loss, not anything that was profitable. The, great, the greatness of Jesus far surpassed my own righteousness. Now, look, every single one of us has to answer a question. Whether you are a Christian, not a Christian, maybe you're here seeking, maybe you're curious, you know, what about God, what about Jesus, what about all these things? There's general agreement, I think you would agree with me. There's general agreement. If you were to ask anybody on the street, in relation to God, do you think you're good enough as a person in comparison to God? I think most people, if they have any ounce of self-awareness, would say, no, you know, I'm not, I mean, I try to be a good person, but compared to God, not good enough. So then the question becomes, how do you bridge the gap, however you might see yourself, a decent person, a good person, not a good person, there's still a gap between you and a good and holy God. How do you bridge that? How, do, how can you ever then be good enough for a God? And here's what a lot of people rely on. I'll just try to work harder and be a better person. That's what Paul describes as my own righteousness. I just tried to do a bunch of good things to try to be good enough to get good for God. And he says, I thought I was doing really well. I thought I had it down. I thought, I thought it was to my profit until I realized that the righteousness that comes through Christ far surpasses my own righteousness. I can never be good enough because there's not enough good things I can do to get the problem resolved, which is a heart problem. We all have. So how is it then we can get good enough for God? We have to receive righteousness through another source because we don't have it in ourselves. So this is what he means here. He talks about my own righteousness and righteousness that comes from God through faith. The only way that we can bridge this gap, the only way that we can be made right before God, is to accept the righteousness that comes from his Son. This is what God offers us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Again, hear it again. For God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So God says, all right, since there is no one righteous, no, not one, Romans 3.23, all have fallen short of the glory of God, then I will implement a plan whereby my righteous son will assume the penalty of our sin, and I will exchange his righteousness for your sinfulness. And if you accept that by faith, you can be made right before God. That's it. If you accept that by faith, you can be made right before God. And what a relief that is, isn't it? No more striving, no more having to prove yourself to God or anyone else. You can just rest in the finished work of Christ and you can receive his righteousness for your sinfulness. It's the story of the great exchange. And this is what God has done for us. So, so Paul realizes this. He said, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Everything looks good until it has a comparative standard. You know, white little woolly sheep against the hilly landscape, they look beautiful until it snows. And then you have the white snow, and then you realize just how dirty and ugly and matted those sheep are. But until you have the, the backdrop, you don't really realize just how dirty they look. And Paul says, when Jesus came into my life as the backdrop, I began to realize just 
Everything I thought was so great about me is really not great at all. And it's his righteousness that is surpassing. Philippians is such a happy little book. Its pages are filled with rejoicing and encouragement and reminders that there's hope in the midst of struggle. The Apostle Paul was enthusiastic and complimentary in this letter to his brothers and sisters in Christ, and the instructions you find within its pages are relevant to you still today. Thanks for joining Pastor Gary Hamrick in studying this New Testament book of Philippians today on Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to hear more from this series or explore additional books of the Bible, you can do so at cornerstoneconnection.cc or download our mobile app to take these messages on the go with you. Each day contains mundane tasks that can be filled with God's Word, and that's made easier when you have it conveniently located on your mobile device. Find a link to download our app at cornerstoneconnection.cc. We'd love to meet you too, so if you're in the area, come join us this Sunday at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. We'll have a time of worship and Bible study, and we're always excited to meet new people. You'll find more information at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Thanks for joining us today. Pastor Gary has more to share from his verse-by-verse study of the book of Philippians. So join us again on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know You're not alone Real love is calling Listen, truth opens up your eyes Mercy is waiting for you With every sunrise Hope is an open ocean Jump in and you'll find The cornerstones Your connection run towards your new Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.